You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Our topic today is what the Tower of Babel is really about. Really, really And our guest is Sam Boyd. Yeah, Sam Boyd, he's the assistant professor of religious studies and Jewish studies, specializing in the Bible and its ancient Near Eastern context. And he teaches at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And, uh, you know, full disclosure, Sam and I, we go way back. He's a friend of mine. And, you know, without exaggeration, I had a lot of brilliant students at Westminster. So you being one of them, Jared. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Mm -hmm. Probably in the top two or three or four students. Sam was. Sam was. Yeah. I remember he was, he was there around, I think he was a little older than me, but while I was there and he was there, he was kind of known as like the wunderkind. Yeah. And he's a great guy on top of it too. So anyway, it was great to have him here. And he does a lot of very specific focused work in the area of Bible and its context, but also, as we'll get into here, where that goes and what the implications might be for some of these stories, like the Tower of Babel story. And that's we get to that at the end, and that's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, and he's the author of the upcoming book, Babel, Political Rhetoric of a Confused Legacy, which is coming out June 20th. So if this is an interesting discussion for you, I'd mark that on your calendar, June 20th, Babel, Political Rhetoric of a Confused Legacy. All right, let's get into it. The Tower of Babel is the first time in the Bible where there's really collective action. And you can see the way that people use this story to sort of construct this identity of land and language in ways that are striking, in ways that have real political impact. We're becoming a Tower of Babel. And as we all know from the story, the more multilingualism you have, the more it's a sign of divine curse. Because that's clearly what happened in the Bible. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Sam, wel- welcome to our podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you for having Isn't me. Isn't it, though? It's wonderful. It is. It's fantastic. I love being here. Yes. Thank you. Okay, our episode today, we're talking about the Tower of Babel. And let's just start with, refresh our memories. Like, where is the story found? And basically, I mean, what it's about is part of the discussion today. But just basically, like, what are the contours of the story? Thank you. No, so the story is in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And... The basic context within those verses, at least in the traditional understanding of the text, is that there are these very obscure Hebrew phrases that begin it, and they usually get translated, people have one language uh, and something else. But the idea is that that traditionally understood, this is sort of a story in which people have one language. They build a tower in a city, 
The tower is what stands out in everybody's mind, which is why we call it the Tower of Babel. And God comes down. He takes a look at it and he goes, oh, this is just the first of what they'll do. He disperses them, and this then becomes the the, the explanation, you know, scholars might call it, an etiology for, for the name Babel. God confuses their languages. And so in the traditional understanding, this story toggles between a world where everybody speaks the same language and then a world of multilingualism. And what's significant about this story being in Genesis 11 it's the last sort of narrative episode of what scholars call the primeval history, which is Genesis 1 through 11. And the very next episode out of this comes the call of this guy, Abraham, who is obviously the founding figure of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So clearly, Genesis 11, just by virtue of the fact that it's right next to the call of, of Abram, in some sense, it's the standalone story that has, has excited the imagination of people like – what does it say about multilingualism? What does it say about all sorts of things mythologically in the biblical text? But then it also is like this last episode of this important section from the creation of the world mm -hmm. that then resolves in some sense in the call of this one guy, Abram, that then just becomes the focus of everything, everything else. So it's got this important pivotal moment, this sort of pivot within biblical literature itself. And then it's also – you can go to a bookstore and find – linguistics textbooks that mention the Tower of Babel, or Babel is now sort of the name of a number of, of new novels that have come out. It's it's sort of hmm. been a part of popular political intellectual culture as a standalone story. But within the biblical text, uh, the traditional understanding is, is just that. It's this ultimate affront to the divine and the punishment of which is the advent of multilingualism. And the affront is the attempt to build a tower, so-called that reaches up to the heavens. In right? the traditional interpretation, yes. Right. Okay. That's what we're going to get into. <laughs> yeah. So apparently all the Sunday school classes have been wrong. Right. We are excited for you to, to sort of Sam take us through. Yeah. Sam ruins the Tower of Babel. So take us through and maybe as you are able, maybe toggle between that traditional and, and what are the questions that come up that lead to maybe a different reading or the reading that you would see in there. So let's sum up what your reading is, like a tweet. Think like the young people, <laughs> like Twitter, okay? So uh, give us a tweet of like, okay, how is it different? And then let's really get into why you would say such crazy things. Go ahead. I, I can't think like the young people. I hate their music now already. I know. I'm old. These I, kids I walk today. around in the fraternities and sororities and the rock and roll and hippity hop. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, but I think the... Uh, the story as I see it in exploring sort of the topic of this book, we understand it as the Tower of Babel. We have two important words there, Tower and Babel, and as the advent of multilingualism. And what I'm arguing in this book is that it's not about the tower. It's actually not about Babylon, and it has nothing to do with the advent of multilingualism. So basically, 0 for 3 on the story. And where I get there, sort of reading through the story, Genesis 11, 1 through 9 on its own, those obscure phrases in Genesis 11.1, 1, and it also shows up in Genesis 11.6, of having one language, they don't really – that phrasing doesn't really appear anywhere else in biblical Hebrew and Hebrew inscriptions and other Northwest Semitic inscriptions, which are like inscriptions related to biblical Hebrew more closely. We can talk about the little further afield. Not to get too nerdy, but what is – I mean, because uh, it's translated in English as one – language. I mean, or other ways, but like woodenly, what, what does the Hebrew say if it's even fair to put it that way? One lip. 
Oh, gosh. Um, and it's this one lip thing that sort of attracts the language idea. Uh, my argument is that there are further afield from biblical Hebrew into the realm of Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia. There are inscriptions there that that speak of one mouth that the king imposes as good governance, or when the enemies of the king have one mouth, it's treason. And so my argument, which is not unique to me, there are others before me, uh, a wonderful a scholar, German scholar in 1990, wrote a book about this, though he and I have very different views on the composition of the biblical text, which will sort of take my research in a different direction. But I think he's right that this idea of one mouth is kind of the political rhetoric behind Genesis 11.1, so that when the people have it and they build a city and a tower and two articles came out fairly recently that I use a lot in the book that argued that Genesis 11.5, the grammar of the Hebrew actually dictates that this is a completed tower that they finish. It's not the incomplete thing of sort of art history. So the story is now unfolding as people have sort of a united intent against the divine and they build a tower in a city. Now, in the ancient world, if you were going to build a city you would ask the gods or goddesses for permission to do so. They just go do it. They're not asking God for permission. And there's a, a scholar who sort of sees this as basically God receding. And if God is going to actually have some sort of relationship with humanity, something different needs to happen, which is where I think this pivots to the call of Abram. But getting ahead of myself here. So in my understanding of the Tower of Babel, these are idioms of united political affront against the divine doing things without conferring with the divine. And there's actually, again, in the ancient world, a king named Sargon II, who's the only Mesopotamian king whose body was never recovered from battle, like unheard of, that when he died in battle, they didn't recover his body. What did he do? And there's actually a text called the Sin of Sargon text, mm. where some of these ancient Mesopotamian scholars are like, maybe he didn't really confer with the divine enough when he built his city, his main capital, that he built a new place called Dur Sharukin. And so there's some sort of that cultural background going on here in the biblical text, maybe, that the people complete the tower and God looks down kind of like the Garden of Eden, where people get to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the syntax, the word order of the Hebrew there, exactly the same in Genesis 3, 22 to 24. And in Genesis 11, 6, nowhere else happens in the biblical text where God comes down and says, look, they did this lest they do something else, lest they have the tree of life, lest they complete their building of the city, I'm going to disperse them. And so it's really the city that's like the ultimate affront to the divine. Like they got a tower and God's like, I don't want them to get anything else. So he basically disperses them. And this actually solves sort of a problem in biblical research. There's a very famous uh, German scholar, Hermann Gunkel, who used to think of Genesis 2 through 3 as two different stories combined, one about a tree of life, one about a tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he did the same thing to Genesis 11. There was a story about a tower and a story about a city, because at the end of the story, it only mentions the city being left off from being built. The Tower of Babel mentions the tower twice. It mentions the city three times. The city is actually the more important thing I'm arguing in the book. So not about a tower, more about the city. I'd argue not about multilingualism because this is the particular words in Hebrew through a variety of considerations that I'm happy to walk through, I think are better translated otherwise. And then there's sort of good reason for seeing this as less to do with Babylon and more to do with another kingdom a little further north called Assyria. And there are a variety of things behind this, but even this character Nimrod, who shows up in Genesis 10, very enigmatic in the biblical text, he gets described as building Babel 
in Genesis 10, which is why, though he's not mentioned at all in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel story, he becomes in sort of the religious imagination afterwards, the archetypal evil king who's responsible for all this. He's actually much more depicted as like an Assyrian king, the way that he sort of is depicted as not just building cities, a very prominent thing that, that this guy Sargon II does. In fact, one of the city names uh, some scholars think is a bit of a reference to Dor Sharukin, the capital he builds. So there's a number of things that connect it to an Assyrian background. And it's interesting because in the ancient world, Babel was actually sort of a, a term that people would use to describe prestigious cities like, oh, it's the New York of, you know, I live in Boulder, Colorado. It's the San Francisco of Colorado, you know, hippie, all that stuff, you know, really cool progressive culture, whatever. Like Nineveh is like the Babel of Assyria. Like we have that in some texts, like it's using that as a label. So that Babel is here, that it's an ideology for confusion which I'm arguing is not linguistic confusion, but confusion of political or unified intent against the divine. It makes better sense of the Hebrew, I'd argue. It makes better sense of exactly what the Tower of Babel is doing relative to Abram. Yeah, and it's another fun opportunity to take 121 words in Hebrew that you can take, and people have been reading it for forever. And it's is a fun story of like, you have them translate it, and they can make sense of all the words, but the word for lip itself there, safa, right. <laughs> on its own, when it's not put directly next to another word, lashon, which means tongue, safa on its own elsewhere doesn't mean language. And the fun thing about sort of a, an exploration of the Tower of Babel the way that I do it in the book is that it's only, I think, when the Bible is edited with two stories put together. In Genesis 10, there's a story from what we call the priestly source. And you've had people like Joel, Baden, Jeff Stacker, Ari Friedman. I'd also really like to mention uh, Julia Ryder at Harvard, who's a phenomenal scholar of P&H. Leanne Feldman is probably the smartest person I know. (laughs) I want to make sure because there is such a world of Pentateuchal scholarship where everybody looks like me. And it's a problem. So I want to make sure that some of the incredible uh, women scholar out there, like Laura Quick at Oxford, you know, uh, get their due. Mm -hmm. But what we see is when these J and P, these two different stories are put together, P has this notice of Lashon in Genesis 10. J has the story of Lip in Genesis 11. And so when you read it as like enfolding chronologies, what else could Genesis 11 be? But a story about multilingualism right. and how people spread. Because that is the point in chapter 10, right? The spread of different languages. Right? In Genesis so. 10, 5, Genesis 10, 20, Genesis 10, 31. But that's all P. And that's one word, Lashon. Genesis 11 is a different word, Safa. And when you separate them in different narrative contexts, it does something fun to it where you can take language out of the Tower of Babel. It ruins the story for us, I know, but I think it actually makes more sense of how that functions relative to the call of Abram. And you get all these other fun things, like there's a guy named Klaus Vestermann who wrote this commentary on Genesis, and he has this throwaway line of, except for one story in Merkar and the Lord of Arata, which is an ancient epic or ancient sort of story, that there's no other sort of parallel within the world of the Bible for multilingualism like that. Now, some scholars are questioning whether in Merkar and the Lord of Arata is actually a story of multilingualism, in which case there is no parallel. <laughs> so, you know, from the Greek world, uh, there's a great scholar, Deborah Guerra, who's done work on this, but not so much from the world of the Bible directly. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like one of those things where you start pulling the thread and there's so many other things that start falling in place for me. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary. 
where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Can you maybe go to, you've mentioned a couple of times, we talked about its relationship to Genesis 10 and maybe how that can lead us in an interesting, but I mean, maybe a misdirect us, but if we connect it to the call of Abram, maybe there's some interesting things there. So what is the connection mm -hmm. to the call of Abram? Because I think scholars for a long time have recognized some of those connections. Yeah. There's a very famous German scholar, Gerhard von Rod, who talks about Genesis 11 is the ultimate sin against which the call of Abram is this ultimate thing of grace, which is obviously a very German Protestant way of viewing it, uh, not necessarily the way I would view it altogether. But in the particular story to which Genesis 11 belongs, there is a constant theme of bad things happen when the human and the divine realm cross in ways that are not okay with God. So Genesis 2 to 3 is the classic one. And you have the Nachash, the serpent, who tells, uh, you know, has this conversation with Eve, but always is using the plural you. So, you know, Adam is right there and doing nothing. And it, it's, it's this story of, you know, God said, don't eat of these two trees. And then people eat of one, but they don't get the other, which is kind of, again, an explanation or an etiology of how humans are like God. Like we have some knowledge of good and evil, some discernment for judgment, but we're not. We don't live forever. And then you move forward in time, but that's a boundary crossing between the divine and the human realm that has consequences. Mm -hmm. Move forward in the same story that I would call Jay. The very next major episode is Cain and Abel. 
And there's this passage in the Psalms where God gets to appoint the days for the life of people. And what happens is Cain decides on his own, he will appoint the days of the numbers of life of Abel. Like another big boundary crossing, big problems happen. And then you get to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which is the biggie with like Darren Aronofsky's Noah, which I've never actually seen. And it's kind of pathetic. Like I walk around here all the time and try to connect with my undergrads. Like, hey, it's like Game of Thrones. They're like, we don't even watch that anymore. I was like, yeah, I never watched it. I don't like violence, but I really want to relate to you. So so please help me. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Read the Bible. Um, like this is how I'm going to do it. But you get to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, it's the B'nai Elohim who have these relations with women. And again, it's a boundary crossing that in J is what causes the flood. And then the next story is the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, again, this boundary crossing where now the divine realm isn't even being conferred with. He's off somewhere. People are doing this on their own and God has to come down to take a look at it, which is – and then when he sees it, and I would argue that sort of the um, larger background of the ancient world and the importance of conferring with the divine for city building as, you know – Sometimes the god or goddess would give you the revelation for doing it. Uh, the way in which Sargon, this this Mesopotamian king, built his capital, numerologically, like the width of the walls was connected with his name. He sort of built his his identity in it. He bragged about being another sort of Gilgamesh or Adapa, which are these ancient characters that had this connection to the divine realm. Genesis 11, people are doing the ultimate front yet again. They're building a tower and especially a city without God even being conferred with. He's got to come down and take a look at it. And it's like, I'm going to disperse you. You are done. You know, and they're all sorts of interesting readings that sort of come from this thread. You know, are people doing this because they're afraid another flood is going to happen? You know, there's this, this mm-hmm. sort of story out there that they're, what is their motivation for doing this? And, and I would argue that it's, again, sort of a, another example of bottom up affront to God. Now, how is the call of Abram a solution to that? What's Abram doing in his in his youth? Bible didn't say. He's nothing, you know. Hanging according to later interpretation, he's smashing idols and has this this conflict with Nimrod as the king of Ur, you know. And there's actually in, in Islamic tradition, there's a mosque in a place called Shanli Urfa. Urfa is the Ur of Ur of Chaldees in Islamic tradition. That's where all this happened. And there's a, a holy mosque there with a holy pool that have fish in it, and the pool is symbolic because Nimrod tries to light Abram on fire. Ibrahim for his vision and God douses him with so much water. There's a pool in it where fish can swim. Hmm. Uh, that's like how great. So for the, the relationship here is that Abram's doing nothing actually in the Bible. The silence is intentional because God is going to deal with people by an arbitrary top-down decision. Nothing that Abram did, not in like a grace, Protestant, whatever, but it just as a literary function, God is tired of people pushing out the boundaries between divinity and humanity. So if he's going to relate to humanity, the silence is intentional. There's nothing you need to know about Abram. You just need to know that God says, go forth from your land. You know, it just, God says this, do this. Why? Just do it. Yeah, there's nothing he did that led to God conferring favor on him or anything. It's, it's I mean, the way the Calvinists would say it's, He's elect, right? This sort of elect. <laughs> or, or, or Gary Anderson has this, uh, who's a phenomenal scholar at Notre Dame, has this great essay in one of his books where he talks about the surprise of election here. Mm-hmm. And, and, it, and it's literally surprising. I mean, the guy's, he's got a wife, she's barren. That's all you know about him. And like any other person around. So, the, so part of the argument of the book is that silence that has clearly been exciting the minds of especially Jewish and Islamic interpreters. Over time, like what was he has to have been doing something. I'm arguing that that is intentional silence. 
Mm-hmm. Well, let me let me ask him. Just getting back to the story itself, if multilingualism is not the issue here, two questions: How would you re? How would you translate the opening of the story differently? Right, and also, what about the? Again, is it say confusion of words later on? I, I'm trying to remember the Hebrew myself, but is, is there's some confusion of language or of words or of communication? How does that fit with a let's say a non linguistic way of reading this story? So I would translate that opening, and I'm actually scrolling down to my my translation that I do. Um, all, so you're going to quote yourself? Yeah, exactly. Right. Buy my book. All the way, <laughs> all the world was unified or had the same plan is another way I'm translating the Safa Achat, the one lip. And they had the same custom. And what's fun about this, so Devar, which is the word here, oftentimes they had the same words, the same, and then Safa Achat, they had the same language. There was a scholar in the late 17th, early 18th century in Amsterdam, Campagius Vitringa. Of course. Who came to the same conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's great. And he basically says this idea of one lip is the same thing as another phrase that shows up in Exodus 24, 3, which means with one voice. And the idea of Dvari Machadim, which is the next phrase in Hebrew, which is like uh, uh, the same words or similar unified words or something like that, in that same passage refers to laws or customs. So he says this and he and he critiques the official uh, state translation of the Bible huh. and gets in big trouble because he's doing this right after a, another guy, Baruch Spinoza, was using the Bible to make political arguments all the time. So this guy, Compatrius Vitriga, comes to this argument, not doing the critical scholarship that I'm doing. He gets actually tried for criticizing. It's the, like, dude, read the room here, man. You got, you're in the <laughs> wake like, of Spinoza. Come on. Yeah, all right. No, exactly. No, exactly. But he gets criticized and actually sort of brought into an official charge. How dare you criticize the state translation of, of the Bible? And he recants, but not because of any linguistic evidence. Right, of course. So it's interesting to me, you have traces of uh, not just this wonderful scholar in 1890, uh, the German scholar I mentioned before, but this guy all the way back in the, the late 17th, early 18th century, who sort of sees that, you know, if we work a little harder on the Hebrew, there's maybe a different answer that comes out. Okay. So can you say something like, I mean, I, I'm trying to get some clarification about the beginning. Can you say something like there was one culture? Is that overstating or is that maybe a way, like you said, one plan, one custom or something like that? There's a way of doing things. They were united in how they live or exist or or something, but not their language. That's not the issue. Not their language. And this came out of, in some sense, uh, the work I did on this particular Mesopotamian inscription and a phrase in it that actually shows up in a number of royal inscriptions in ancient Mesopotamia where it's not just a custom in the sense that, hey, we wear the same clothes. There's more of a united intent behind it towards an actionable thing. So in ancient Mesopotamian rhetoric, when all the enemies of an Assyrian king have one mouth, they're fighting against the king. It's treason. It's treasonous intent. Yeah. Ah, that's cool. Yeah, because that obviously fits very nicely with your theory. Well, Well, and then you even get retellings in antiquity where they build a tower with a sword on top. That's in these ancient Aramaic translations where they're, they're, they're fighting, you know, uh, and even some of those interpretations that see this as multilingualism, they're still picking up on the idea that this is like, I think Philo calls it like they're waging a war against God. And I'm just sort of adding some linguistic precision to that. Yeah. So Philo around the time of Christ, right? A, a Jewish interpreter. So yeah. Yeah. Deeply so can we go then from there, getting clear on that? Can you say a little bit more about how the silence at the beginning of 12 is intentional? 
to sort of say, okay, this isn't working. This is how it's going to, can you just say a little bit more about what, what's the force of that? Like, what does that do for the narrative? I think for the narrative, what the, the force of that is all the way back from Genesis two to three to four to six, you have this problem of people are forcing this boundary and they're doing something bottom up. So the idea then of having a guy who's not doing anything and guys like, all right, this is how we're going to have a relationship. I'm going to come straight top down. It's random. It's arbitrary. But this way, there's no there's no possibility. There's no background against which he's doing anything that would infract on this divine human boundary. I'm just going to come down arbitrarily to this one guy hanging out there, chilling, doing whatever he's doing. And I don't want, you know, doesn't want the reader to know anything about him because this is like the perfect arbitrary top-down decision as a solution to something that has been bottom-upping and really transgressing this divine human boundary ever since creation. And you see even ancient interpreters who see the Tower of Babel as a story of language struggling with how to connect this. So Jubilees has Abram, this sort of second century BCE document, who's not only getting this connection to God, but he gets the language that's part of the solution because language is part of the problem in the previous chapter. And part of the argument of the book is that if we understand the Tower of Babel in the traditional way as being about multilingualism, and the call of Abram isn't solving that, then it's an abiding problem. And you can see the way that the Tower of Babel still functions in modern culture where people still see it. Even in Dante, Dante would talk about you know the languages of hell, like as multilingual, people have languages where they don't understand each other. Hmm. As like, hmm. this is like the fall part two, if that makes sense. Well, mm-hmm. I, I want to make sure we get to that because I think that's an important kind of yeah. second half of this conversation is we have what's in the text, but then we have how people have used it. How has this passage been used in, in recent history politically? What's the danger of, because it feels like we're getting really into the weeds and esoteric about this or that, but it actually has consequences. Yeah, no, absolutely. So part of when I was really thinking about this passage, I remember seeing Rain Wilson's tweet about how one of the oddities of history is that Jesus of Nazareth goes from being a poor peasant Jew who preaches good news to the poor to becoming a bumper sticker for gun rights in, in white America. And it's this weird mystery of history. And I remember like throughout COVID watching people use the Bible for different things, you know, like don't tell me to wear a mask. Well, like Leviticus 13 and 14 have this highly infectious disease and you're supposed to quarantine, wear something over your lips and say unclean. Like this doesn't make sense to me that the Bible becomes this prop. I mean, that's clearly what it is. And I think for me, I wanted to write a book, you know, as, as you guys know, when you go off to grad school, you specialize, you do like Bible in the ancient Near East or source criticism. There's some, there's a lot of overlap there. Or you go to somewhere different to do second temple Judaism, or you go somewhere different to do like medieval Christianity and Judaism and somewhere different to do modern religious, whatever. But there's some history that connects the papyrus scrolls in which these things are written to the guy who takes a Bible and tries to do an insurrection on January 6th. And I wanted to write a book that had a little bit of that history that connects from the start of the passage to like how is it showing up now? And what was really interesting to me is to look at even the art history where the representations of the Tower of Babel expand exponentially with the rise of the nation state because it becomes a narrative of the Tower of Babel is the first time in the Bible where there's really collective action. And it's there with this, you know, priestly table of nations in Genesis 10 of like how nations happen and the spread of their languages. So in the traditional understanding, there's this 
real importance to this passage of political sensibility, of an idea that I'm speaking a language, and you even get arguments into the 16th century of, is that language, uh, can I justify the language I use in my land as being something that escaped the curse of the Tower of Babel? so that my language is elect. Martin Luther did something similar with German. There's a guy named uh, Bacanus who was in the Netherlands, and he tried to use his dialect of Dutch to say it's actually connected to Hebrew and connected to a passage in Genesis 10, where this guy Japheth's descendants go to the islands of the nations, which you can also translate the Goyim, the islands of the Gentiles. He goes, oh, that's Europe. And this is happening before the Tower of Babel. Maybe my dialect escaped the curse. (laughs) And you can see the way that people use this story to sort of construct this identity of land and language in ways that are striking, in ways that have real political impact. And you sort of then fast forward to the founding of America. And it's fascinating because scholars have pointed out if there was any area in the history of the world that would not necessarily be unilingual and if one language is what we're going to go with would not use English – We just fought a war with the Britons who used English. Like, it's not a necessary and natural occurrence that this would be our language. We, in the colonial situation in America, were very multilingual. So you think about all the German Hessians, think about all the French traders, think about all the Amerindian native indigenous dialects, think about all the African languages you'd hear because of the horrible, awful, deplorable situation of slavery in America. But you get a little further in time, and by the time you get to the, the early 20th century, especially Teddy Roosevelt, pre-World War I and then to World War I, Teddy Roosevelt makes this statement that the language of the country ought to be the language that the Constitution and Declaration of Independence were written in. Uh, and it's become sort of a de facto just statement of who we are, such that leap forward a few more decades – You get politicians, uh, there's a guy named Pat Buchanan who ran for president a few times in the 1990s, early 2000s. Uh, If you go to his webpage and Google Tower of Babel, and he uses that passage to criticize Bush and another Republican's policies on immigration. It's too lax. We're becoming a Tower of Babel. (laughs) And as we all know from the story, the more multilingualism you have, the more it's a sign of divine curse. Uh, Because that's clearly what happened in the Bible. Uh, you see it happen even earlier. There, uh, there's a, one of the original editors of The Atlantic wrote a poem in The Atlantic in the, the 1890s where he uses the Tower of Babel and he talks about Europe's monthly throng in a very negative, xenophobic way. Fast forward a little bit more into the 2000s. 2017, there was a um, Southern Poverty Law Center has identified them as a hate group, but they appealed to the Tower of Babel to make America an English-only nation. And they've met with uh, Steve King back then was a House of Representatives in Iowa. He's no longer in his seat. But they met with the Trump administration. They tried to pass an act in the House of Representatives that didn't work. But it's still there. And it ha- affected real people. You know, even to the point of other – I mentioned this at the end of the book. If you Google the new Amazon headquarters in Virginia and then Google Peter Bruegel, the elder's depiction of the Tower of Babel, they look the same. So it says something about the way that people see themselves – politically, economically, culturally in the world. And it has these sort of real-world impacts. Um, One more story. uh, About two weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, a very uh, large art park in Russia built a 26-foot tower uh, wooden structure of Babel and burned it to the ground. Clearly has resonance for our cultural moment. What they meant by that, they described as the collapse of world order under COVID. But, you know, people reinterpreted it in light of Putin's insane ambition and the collapse of sort of a world order under his his anarchy uh, and ultimate human rights issues. But a thinker, Jonathan Haidt, wrote about the Tower of Babel as the narrative of our times. 
the incomprehensibility, um, the violence that can result from it. You find even ancient mosaics, uh, Hukok in Israel that date to like the fifth century AD that have a mosaic of the Tower of Babel where people are fighting with each other because they can't understand each other. Right. So that's the that, the argument then it is that's the curse. The curse is multilingualism and it leads to all of these bad things. Therefore, we need to unite under one language as a nation state to overcome the curse. This is kind of God's will. Exactly. So for the Tower of Babel, if the call of Abram solves one part of it, but if we understand the Tower of Babel as language-oriented, but that's not there in the Bible and Abram's call, then it's still something that needs to be dealt with. And you can look at Acts 2 and Pentecost, and people saw this as a celebration of multilingualism, actually. Like Augustine of Hippo says, it's kind of like the story of Joseph. What humans wrought for ill, the Tower of Babel, God ultimately has for good, the multilingualism of early Christianity. And again, just the fascinating history of how, at least in modern, in some senses, uh, in some areas, modern Christian communities don't sort of see multilingualism as a good thing, at least as a political instrument. The nation state is there to help solve that curse. Hmm. I had no idea. I don't know about you, Jared, but this is like all over the place. So <laughs> right, go figure. One thing I just, you know, back to the Assyrian connection, mm -hmm. I find that interesting in the sense that... I mean, feel free to disagree here, but there's a sense in which there's a political map being drawn even in the early chapters of Genesis. And I would say that Genesis 1, there's the background of the Babylonians there. And in uh, you know the flood story, it's very much anti-Canaanite, right? So you've got that problem going on. And it's nice to see the Assyrians included in this barrage <laughs> here in, in 1 through 11, because... I mean, they're the big pain in the neck for a great deal of time in Israel's story. So it makes sense to say that. So you're really against it's about Babylon. That, you're saying that just doesn't make as much sense as the Assyrian idea. So I think, and at least in some you know strands of these sort of sources that we see, it's funny because when people say the Bible is unique in X, Y, and Z, they miss the like most, first of all, they're usually wrong. Like Assyrian scribes counted all the number of syllables at the end of Gilgamesh to make sure it was accurately transmitted. The Masoretes weren't the only ones who did that. Like the big thing where the Bible is different is you get to the law code and there's no king. This is the first time in human history where there's no king. And there are arguments that that is in a very anti-Assyrian thing to do. Like Assyrians are coming in and Code of Hammurabi, which is the king's law, Shamash gives the God of justice, gives the God, the king wisdom, kinum in Akkadian, but it's really the king's law. And so the idea that you get to, this is actually the e-source we're talking about now, which is not the same story as the Tower of Babel, but they're all about the same time. I think they're all about the same. Uh, I, I tell my students that 744 BCE is probably the most important year in human history. And they all go, uh, and this is one of those gotcha moments, gee whiz moments. It's when Tiglath-Pileser III says that area over there in the West, which from a serious point of view, Israel and Judah is the West. I'm going to take that over. And that's, I think, when people start writing biblical literature. Yeah. You know, well, that's when the prophets started. That's when the prophets start. That's Isaiah. You can see Isaiah. So I think there's something with some of these earlier. And I'd say that J and E are, you know, I, I always, when I would teach in graduate school and I would occasionally have older students, I would always joke that, yeah, source criticism is really sort of a literary thing. But when it comes to dating, I kiss dating goodbye. And you could always, <laughs> if they smirk, you're like, I know where you came from. I, I came from where you came from, so like it's okay where this is a safe place. But yeah, like Nimrod, Nimrod's name 
according, you know, is let us rebel. Yeah. Like there, I mean, there's also Nimrud, a, like an actual place name, but, you know, some scholars have looked at him as a character as sort of playing on this idea of anti-Assyrian, you know, maybe anti-Babylonian uh, sentiment. But I don't think we need to go just because it's Babel in Genesis 11. Some would say this is a later addition at the time of the Babylonian exile. I mean, Babel was being used as this sort of broad, nondescript place name already. So I think- How, I, how old is that? How, how far back does that go? Do you have a sense of that, how that Babel was used that way? Stephanie Daly, a phenomenal Assyriologist at Oxford, has done a lot of work on this. I mean, certainly about the time, like 8th century, about the time I'm saying that this was being written to. That's, something in that's there. That's pretty old, yeah. So b- before, before, I mean, like Nineveh, like Assyrian cities at this time were being like, oh, it's the Babel. Yes. Right, right. right, right. It right. didn't take long for that to catch on. Right. Excellent. Well, I mean, this was, I think, a fascinating, I, I really, really appreciated taking us through the history and then connecting it to how this is being utilized now. And it shows that the work of really digging in and understanding what's going on isn't just this esoteric exercise, but can have practical implications around, again, how people are utilizing some of this in in art and in politics and what the messages are that are being shared. So, well, I think that's right, and I think I remember before COVID, you know, Greta Thunberg, the the climate change activist, gave this impassioned speech before the UN leaders, excoriating them. You've left us with this world that's burning. And then Robert Jeffress, a pastor and advisor to President Trump has an interview that gets published where he's like, she's just misguided. If she read Genesis 9, she'd see that the rainbow says that the world will never be flooded with waters again. Now, when I read, first of all, (laughs) climate change is a thing. I don't care how you read Genesis 9. But secondly, when I read Genesis 9, it's God is promising he won't ever flood the earth. He's not saying we can't do it to ourselves. (laughs) And, And this hit home to me because a little over a year ago, we had a fire in Boulder that was two blocks away from my house seeing the ash come yelling at my family to get in the car. It was in October, November, and December that Boulder had never seen snow, which has never happened in the history of this state. Hmm. And all sorts of things that we're still figuring out about the fire, but climate change is real. (laughs) And we live in Boulder in this beautiful area of the world, but it's a high desert climate, which means we get really dry. And if we don't have precipitation, we're a tinderbox. So seeing the Bible, you know, it's just in my mind of like, this is how people use it. And that affects the air I breathe. And at some point, it's not okay anymore that we just have little worlds because we're too connected. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right. Well, listen, Sam, this is, I'm never going to read the Bible again. I'm done. Because <laughs> I thought I the simple thing, like the Tower of Babel story, is now complicated. So thank you for I that. ruined the Bible for Pete. I love it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You ruined it for me. You're in an elite group. Oh, gosh. Anyway, but, but listen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about I think a really complicated topic if you get into it, but with like saying, Jared, a lot of practical implications. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank you guys. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to the Bible for normal people.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. 
You've just made it through another episode of the Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schau.